As we come to the scripture, let me ask you please uh, to bow with me to pray. Uh, Father in heaven, now we come to your word. We confess that it seems to us that our fingers are nimble enough to open the pages of this book. And yet we know that we need you, not only for that effort, but also to understand what is here. So we pray that by your spirit you would help us to listen. To understand, to believe that which you tell us. May it transform us, God, in such a way that we live real life. And that life lived to your glory. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, if you have a Bible, to Jeremiah chapter 11. To read a couple of verses here in Jeremiah 11. And then uh, Jeremiah chapter 20. Count sort of as bookends of this particular section of Jeremiah. You know, I've been working our way through uh, Jeremiah for a little while, and um, so we can continue that. But I want to read these passages this morning. Jeremiah in chapter 11, please, verse, verse 18. This is a lament, if you will, or a very personal statement of this prophet after God has told him of the ministry, the work he is to have. Jeremiah chapter 11, verse 18. Hear the word of God. The Lord made it known to me, and I knew. Then you showed me their deeds, but but I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. I, I didn't know it was against me they devised schemes, saying, let us destroy the tree with its fruit, let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name may, may be remembered no more. But, O Lord of hosts who judges righteously... Who test the heart and the mind. Let, let me see your vengeance upon them, for to you I've committed my cause. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the men of Anathoth, who seek your life and who say, Do not prophesy in the name of the Lord, or you will die by our hand. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will punish them. The young men shall die by the sword. Their sons and their daughters shall die by famine, and none of them shall be left. For I'll bring disaster upon the men of Anathoth, the year of their punishment. Then in chapter 20, in verse 1. Now Peshur, the priest, the son of Emir, who was the chief officer in the house of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things. Then Peshur beat Jeremiah the prophet and put him in the stocks that were in the upper Benjamin gate of the house of the Lord. The next day when Peshur released Jeremiah from the stocks, Jeremiah said to him, The Lord does not call your name Peshur, but terror on every side. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will make you a terror to yourself and to all your friends. They shall fall by the sword of their enemies while you look on. And I will give all Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon. He shall carry them captive to Babylon and shall strike them down with the sword. Moreover, I will give all the wealth of the city, all its gains, all its prized belongings, all the treasures of the king of Judah into the hand of their enemies." who shall plunder them and seize them and carrying them, carry them to Babylon. And you, Peshur, and all you who dwell in your house shall go into captivity. To Babylon you shall go, and there you shall die. And there you shall be buried, you and all your friends, to whom you have prophesied falsely. So that's the scene in the life of Jeremiah. Then Jeremiah reveals his own distress, his own heart, verse 7. O oh Lord, you've deceived me, and I was deceived. You're stronger than I, and you've prevailed. I've become a laughingstock all the day. Everyone mocks me. 
For wherever I speak, I cry out, I shout, violence and destruction. For the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and derision all day long. If I say, I will not mention him or speak any more of his name. There is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I'm weary with holding it in. And I cannot. For I hear many whispering, terrors on every side. Denounce him. Let us denounce him. Say, all my close friends watching for my fall. Perhaps he will be deceived. Then we can overcome him and take our revenge on him. But the Lord is with me as a dread warrior. Therefore, my persecutions will, my persecutors will stumble. They will not overcome me. They will be greatly ashamed, for they will not succeed. Their eternal dishonor will never be forgotten. O Lord of hosts, who tests the righteous, who sees the hearts and mind, let me see your vengeance upon them, for to you have committed my cause. Sing to the Lord, praise the Lord, for he has delivered the life of the needy from the hand of the evildoers. Cursed be the day on which I was born. The day when my mother bore me, let it not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father. A son is born to you, making him very glad. Let that man be like the cities that the Lord overthrew without pity. Let him hear a cry in the morning and an alarm at noon, because he did not kill me in the womb. So my mother would have been my grave and her womb forever great. Why did I come out of the womb to see toil and sorrow? And spend my days in shame. When we began this, I told you it wasn't going to be easy or pretty. As I said, these these two passages are rather bookends to this section. This is a, a bit of a unique section in this prophetic book of Jeremiah. Not unique in the sense that Jeremiah's call changes. It doesn't change. He's still called as a prophet. He's still called to go to the people of ancient Judah. His message doesn't change. God still told him that he was to tell the people in ancient Judah that destruction was going to come, that judgment was going to come, and and lay out the reasons for that judgment and the justice of that judgment and all of that. And he would continue to do that. What's unique here in this section, really, is that we get a glimpse into the life of Jeremiah. We're getting a a glimpse into his, his response here. Now remember, we said we come to the Scripture every week. We come to the Scripture because we believe it to be the Word of God. It says of itself, it's God-breathed. Thus we say that it's infallible, it's all truth, it's inerrant, it doesn't err. We come to it so that we can know God. The prophet Jeremiah, you remember from chapter 9 a few weeks ago, he says, remember, we're not to boast in our own wisdom. We're not to boast in our own strength. We're not to boast in our own riches. We're not to take confidence in any of that. But we're to boast, we're to take confidence in the fact that we know and understand God. That we understand that He's the one who delights in steadfast love. He's the one who delights in justice. He's the one who delights in righteousness. Knowing that should be everything to us. So He says that's where we're to take our confidence. So we come to the Scripture, all of it, including Jeremiah, so that we can know the full breadth of who God is, the best that God can help us, and the best that a human being can know that. So that's our heart's desire, to come to the Scripture so we can know God. In so doing, we come to know ourselves. We come to know human beings as estranged from God. We come to to know that the, the very way that we can be reconciled to God through our Lord Jesus. So we come to know, therefore, what it means to live reconciled to God. And we even get a glimpse of what it is to live unreconciled to God. So we know the eternal life, that is, 
for those who are reconciled to him. We know the eternal death that is to know those who do not be true of those who do not know him are not reconciled to him. All of that revealed here. What we glimpse here in these chapters in Jeremiah is what it means to live reconciled to God as one who bears witness of God in the world as it is. What we see as we come to these chapters, what it means to be a person who is indeed reconciled to God, Jeremiah, and who witnesses of Jeremiah, witnesses of God, that is Jeremiah the prophet, in this world. And what we'll find is a very honest, raw response that I think will resonate to us. Not easy, not pretty, but helpful and necessary as we live this out. Two questions emerge, at least for me, as I read these chapters. One I'll pick up this week, one I'll pick up next week. Uh, I thought I was going to get them both done until I was on page 14. Uh, So, one this week, one next week. So this will carry on. It won't finish everything this week. It won't tie up in a nice little bow as you may want to do. First question is this. How is it that Jeremiah was able to maintain emotional strength? How was he able to maintain courage? How was he able to maintain faith while he was giving this message of judgment to a world that would reject not only the message, but the messenger? That is, Jeremiah himself. How was he able to maintain courage in the midst of this situation where God had called him into, into a world that was going to reject not only the message that he was giving to them, but also the messenger, that is to say, Jeremiah himself. We can catch a glimpse of that into what I read. We can see some of the accusations, persecution, we could say, coming to him emotionally, through by way of friendships, as well as being put in the stocks and beaten and all of that kind of thing. So how was he able to maintain courage, emotional strength, faith in the midst of that kind of calling in the world in which he lived? The second question is this. How can Jeremiah give a message of the judgment of God to a people without himself becoming judgmental? How can Jeremiah give a message of judgment to a group of people, a group of people of whom he was a part, a group of people whom he loved, really, his, his own people? How can he give a message of judgment without himself becoming judgmental? We could put it like this as well. How could Jeremiah, in the midst of a group of people, a group of people that he lived with, a group of people that he loved, give a message of the righteousness of God without himself becoming self-righteous? That one's next week. This one, this week, I want to pick up. I always save the better one till second. You know that. Actually, it's just sort of how it falls out in the passage. But anyway, in the passages. But, but anyway, this first one hits us first in the face. Jeremiah finds himself in a world that will reject him and will indeed, indeed reject uh, his message. So therefore, how does he maintain courage uh, in the midst of all of this? If we run our way back, all the way back to chapter 5, we've dealt with this, but all the way back to chapter 5 and verses 30 and 31, we get a sense of what's happening in ancient Judah. Now you remember 
that uh, two kingdoms of Israel split after King Solomon. I know that you don't keep this history in your head. I don't expect you to. Uh, although you, what I do really expect you to. You should. It's our history. It's our heritage. You should know this. Although I know you, you probably don't know your great-great-grandfather either. But, um, uh, but we should know that. But um, um, we, should, we should really know this history. It's ours. But... Uh, Northern Kingdom, Southern Kingdom, Northern Kingdom already destroyed, already judged by God because of their sin, the rebellion against God. He had laid out for them a wonderful covenant of life uh, to be their God. They would be his people and, and they rebelled against him. And so justice prevailed until God came and he brought judgment there in the Northern Kingdom. Judah, Southern Kingdom, still hanging on. God's still coming, but they had a horrible king, Manasseh, some time before the coming of Jeremiah and his calling. And, and, and God would judge uh, ancient Judah because of the sins that he brought into the land to purge, to purify, to judge. So that's the message. That's what's coming. But there were other prophets. Jeremiah wasn't the only prophet in, in ancient Judah in these days. And there were other prophets way more popular than Jeremiah, as you might rem- uh, imagine, because they were prophesying peace. They were saying all is well. You really don't have to worry about a holy, just God who is your creator. You don't have to worry about him. Really, all is well with you. The temple's here. Why fret? Continue to live as you are. And Jeremiah came with a different message, of course. But notice how... He puts it here in Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 30. He writes and says, An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule at their direction. The direction of the prophets who are prophesying falsely, and at their own direction. And, and here's the, the, the sadness of all of it. God says, And my people love to have it so. They love this. You get the same sense as Paul, the apostle, writes to his son in the faith, Timothy, in 2 Timothy, in in chapter 4. He writes to Timothy, in a similar way that God was speaking actually to Jeremiah, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word, that is, be faithful to continue with this message of the gospel. Preach the word, be, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. A similar time was coming then would be true in Timothy's time, was true before, true in our own day. My people love it. They love to hear that which is false because the false teacher says, don't worry about God. Don't... don't, don't, don't worry, because you get to define yourself. Who are you? Seek that out and, and live that out however you wish. Whereas the message of the gospel comes, the message of the scripture comes, the message of God comes, the message of Jesus comes, the message of the apostles come to us and say, no, there is a creator, God, the one who owns you, the one who made you, and he designed you for a particular purpose, and thus he defines that particular purpose, and, and now you're to submit to that purpose and to live that out. That's real life. That's the joy of your life. But if, see, if our hearts are turned against that, then we'd rather not hear that. We'd rather love that which is other than that. And that was the days in which Jeremiah in which Jeremiah would live. 
And so we see the implications of that in, in what I've read in Jeremiah in chapter 11, for instance, in verses 18 and 19. Uh, uh, Jeremiah, really verse 19, he says, But I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. I mean, that's how he views his life. He says, Okay, God, now you've called me to go into this group of people with this truth, to tell them about you and to tell them about your justice and your righteousness and, and judgment to come, to call them to repentance, to change their ways and all of that, to come back to the covenant of God. And, and really what that looks to me as... And this is just a glimpse into the heart, the honesty, the rawness of this prophet. And it would be, I suspect, exactly like we would feel. In fact, you may know this feeling in certain places where you have been. You feel like a lamb led to the slaughter. You feel like, oh, oh, I had this message of the gospel. It was so wonderful, so great. I just assumed everybody would love to hear it. And wow, they didn't. He says, I didn't know that it was against me they devised schemes saying, let us destroy the tree with its fruits. Let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name be remembered no more. You get a sense that Jeremiah might even be implying, God, I, I assume they'd be angry with you, but not me. I thought I was just a messenger. But, but what's up with this? So that's where he... He finds himself that being his, his situation. And not only that, the people that he's speaking to are people that appear to be blessed by God more than Jeremiah's being blessed. At least that's the way their life looks. Everything seems to be fine to Danny. In, 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 in Jeremiah chapter 12, he puts it like this. He says, righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? I mean, if these people are so wicked, why is life so good for them? And so not only do I have to put up with the fact that they're against me, they're richer than I am. They seem healthier than I am. And I keep telling them that God is against them and that God is going to destroy them unless they repent. But, but what evidence do I really have of that? They seem to be quite well off. They seem to be quite happy. He says, you plant them and they take root. He says, I know you're sovereign. You're the one who's given this to them. They grow and produce fruit. Fruit. You are near in their mouth, yet far from their, their heart. He said, why is it that I need to go to them? In fact, these very ones are people of his own hometown. If I can back up just a bit into chapter 11 and verse 21, God speaks to him and says, Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the men of Anathoth, that was Jeremiah's hometown. If you go back to chapter 1, that's where he lived. These were his people. These were the people he grew up with. These are the people who knew him, who knew his family. They were the very ones against him. In fact, if you look in verse 6 of chapter 12 he says for even your brothers in the house of your father even they have dealt treacherously with you they are in full cry after you in other words even your mom and dad even your brothers and sisters the very people you're closest to they are against you picture his life here he comes being obedient to God and what happens everything turns against him everybody turns against him his third grade teacher doesn't like him anymore right I mean everybody Everybody in his town. And, and he, he's feeling that in the, midst of, in the midst of this calling. And then I read in chapter 20 what happened when this one person grabs a hold of him and puts him in, this, in the stocks, which is not only an embarrassing thing, but a painful thing. Because in Hebrew, the word for putting you into stocks is, is meaning to twist your body in a particular way that brings pain. So this is a painful thing for Jeremiah. 
It doesn't last long, but it's a painful thing for him. So, so we get every kind of, of abuse that you could possibly imagine coming towards him because he's simply the messenger, the messenger of God. And that's the world in which Jeremiah uh, lived, the world in which he lived. Now the question is, how did he maintain the courage to continue? How did he maintain faith? How did he maintain emotional strength to continue uh, to do all of this? Well, first this, God was very, very, very honest with Jeremiah from the get-go. Jeremiah should have known what to expect. Expectations are important um, in, in any endeavor. Uh, the other night, uh, Chad and Tiffany were uh, invited Karen and me to come and to share in their Before You Say I Do class, this class they teach for um, couples preparing for marriage. And, and we came to talk about expectations because we have a conviction that that's very important. It's important because everybody enters into marriage with certain expectations. You have expectations about what you think married life is. You have expectation about how you think your spouse is going to uh, behave and live in that marriage and, and, and how you think you are. And so all those expectations. And what Karen and I do after 36 and a half years of marriage is that we try to give them realistic expectations uh, about, about marriage. You know, we tell them things like, if you marry for looks, that's fine, but at 50, everybody looks like this. Uh, so, you know, you need to gear your expectations for that. Uh, you, 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 you expect life to be rosy, but remember, God is joining two sinners together as husband and wife. And, you know, while we can say that marriages are made in heaven, so is thunder and lightning. And uh, so, so you, you don't, you know, we want to, you know, we share about our lives with them. And we have a great marriage and family, but it's real. Because you see, if you enter into something and your expectations are skewed, if your expectations are wrong, it's very, very easy to become disappointed when those expectations aren't met. So it's important to have realistic ones. And so as Jeremiah enters this calling, and I would suggest for us as believers in Christ, Jesus was very honest with us about what that would look like. And so God reveals, for instance, in chapter 1, at the very calling of, of Jeremiah, he, he lays this out for them in verse 6. He says, don't be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you. Now, that should have been a hint right away. Don't be afraid of them. Here's the message. Now, oh, by the way, don't be afraid of them. I'll deliver you. Oh. And then later in, verses, in verse 17, God calls Jeremiah like this. He says, but you dress yourself for work. Serious business. Arise, say to them, everything that I command you, don't be dismayed by them, lest I dismay you before them. So they're going to try to dismay you. Now, it's a kind way of saying they're going to try to beat you down. Verse 18. And behold... I make you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar, uh, and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. So all of that comes in this package of his, of his calling. This is what it's to be like. And what's fascinating is that as Jeremiah lays out his lament before God, you know, why have you called me to this? I feel like a gentle lamb to the slaughter and all of that. My, my, my hometown is against me. My family's against me. These people that I'm prophesying against to tell that their lives aren't good seem to live wonderful lives. So, so, so what's up with this? God speaks to Jeremiah like this. Verse, chapter 12, verse 5. 
he says to Jeremiah. Now, what would you expect? Wouldn't you expect what Karen refers to, uh, some oh, poor baby time, you know? Oh, Jeremiah, bless your little heart. Oh, I know it's hard. Let me pat you on the head and so forth and so on. Here's what God says after Jeremiah says that, it says that, that, that these people are prospering, that my family's against me and all of that. God says to Jeremiah, listen to this, if you've raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete with horses? In other words, Jeremiah, you ain't seen nothing yet. And you want to say, come on, God, give him a break. And God said, no, 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 he needs to understand. If he's going to have the courage to face this out, if he's going to have the right expectations to live this out, if he's not going to get disappointed and depressed, he's got to understand from the get-go what this really means. I've got to level with him. I've got to tell him exactly straight, Jeremiah, listen, right now, you're just running with men on foot. That, that's all that's happening to you at this point in time. But horses are coming next. So be prepared. Don't get down now because horses are coming next. I have a little joke I play on myself every year. I don't ever wear my, my winter coat until the middle of November. Right? Because, I'm, because I realize if it's September and I think I need it, winter's coming. And I'll really need it. So I don't want to confuse the issue. God doesn't want to confuse the issue. He says, listen, Jeremiah, you think it's tough now. Before we get into the comfort part, I've got to tell you, it's going to get worse. So brace yourself for that. And he says, if and if in a safe land you are so trusting, what will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? In other words, right now you're, you're operating in terrain. You understand at least. You know these people. But, but what happens when you get outside of your comfort zone? What happens when you get outside of what you know in the, in the thicket of the Jordan where, where nobody can really navigate well? That's where you're going to be. So, so suck it up, prophet. It's going to get worse. And so he lays all that out for him with brutal honesty. Jesus comes to his disciples. Matthew in chapter 10. And he lays out their life as his followers like this. Verse 16. He says, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now you don't have to be a poet to get that. You don't have to be a poet to know that sheep and wolves don't mix. That wolves are the stronger in the midst of that. He said, this is, the, this is what I'm doing. So be as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues. That's both legal as well as religious. Deliver you over the courts, flog you in the synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. So the only way, he's saying to these group of his followers, that I can get you into kings and other places is by way of them persecuting you. They'll drag you before them. You'll have opportunity to tell them about me in that context. So expect it. When they deliver you over to when they deliver you over, don't be anxious how you're to speak or what you're to say. For what you're to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver you over 
brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Now, of course, that kind of violent abuse, persecution towards believers doesn't happen to everybody, doesn't happen in every generation, doesn't happen in every place and every time. But it does happen. It happened to these people in particular. It happens throughout history. We know that. Some of you have borne witness of it. But he says, I want you to understand this is the life to which I'm calling you. It could come to this. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. That is to say, buck up. That is to say, right now you're with men, running with men. Horses are coming. So I want to be honest with you. I want you to tell you that life is not Disneyland as a follower of Christ. Now please understand, I'll be the first to say that following Christ is the joy of my life. And the joy of the life of everyone who follows Christ. That there's no real joy apart from following Him. The scripture says, blessed are the man whose sins are forgiven. There's no greater blessing than to live knowing that you have no guilt before God. No penalty coming from Him. That we have access to Him by way of the Scripture. We read it and it's His Word to us. We have access to Him by way of prayer. We know that He hears us because we come not in our own name, but in the name of Jesus. We come not in our own merit, but in the merit of Christ. We come forgiven our sins, declared righteous by God in Him. So we don't have to make things up. We don't have to pretend that we're good enough to be heard by God or that He just hears everybody. We know that He hears us because we come in the name of Jesus. We come that way. That's true. His beloved Son, the one who is perfect, the one who lived for us, the one who died for us. All of that we come in the name of Jesus. So we have this confidence before him. There's no greater joy in, in, to any human being than that. No greater joy than to know that we live in a body of people, a group of people who love him as well and who, who support us and who love us and all of that. There's, there's no better fellowship than fellowship among those who belong to Christ. But the reality is that we live all that out in the midst of a world that's fallen, in the midst of a world that says, I don't like him. In the midst of a world that says, I like to listen to the false prophets. Now we know the only difference between that group of people and us, because we were once that group of people, is because God has done a work in our lives. That's the only thing we can account for this transformation in us. That's a hint, by the way, of next week's sermon, is how we can do all this and not be self-righteous. Still come, though, there's more. But still, you see, Jesus is being up front. This is, this is how this happens. This is what life is likely to be like. He said it just as forthrightly and yet at a very emotional time in John chapter 15. This was a time when Jesus was with his disciples. It was the night before he was betrayed. Uh, He was speaking to them of things heavy, things which they had no category really in their brain to understand that he was going to leave them, be crucified and all of that. He had given them some warning about that, but this was such a a new idea, such a new concept. What did he really mean by it? They loved him and now he was going to leave them and he was speaking to them in some sense to comfort them. But, But he comforts them with a number of different words, but he comforts them prepares them with this word, verse 18 in chapter 15 of John's Gospel. He says, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Now see, I would love for Jesus to have said, If the world hates you, here's what you have to do and they'll like you. Right? 
But he doesn't do that. He says, if they hate you, oh, by the way, it's because they hated me and you're associated with me, so it's guilt by association. You're mine, therefore, they're going to hate you too. Verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the, world that I, remember the word that I said to you, a servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me, and so forth. So he comforts them, if you will, with that, with that word. He gives them right expectations. As followers of Christ, we don't have stars in our eyes. We know the score. We know life, this life and the life Obviously, that is to come. The apostles knew it. The apostle Paul knew it maybe better than anybody because he was on both ends of it. He was, on the one hand, the hater of the church. He knew that passion. He knew what it was like to look at a follower of Jesus and drag him or her out of their homes, throw them in prison, have them killed. He also knew passion for Christ that would lead courageously to speak of Christ to those he knew who would take him out and stone him and leave him for dead. He knew both sides of that. And thus, you see, when he comes to his church and he says, it's through many tribulations that we enter into the kingdom of God, he knew of that which he spoke when he wrote to the church in Thessalonica, for instance, and in First Thessalonians, in chapter 2, he puts it like this. He says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we still had the boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel in the midst of much conflict. He says, We were beaten in Philippi, and so we made this plan. We'll go to Thessalonica, because we know there's conflict there too. Something sustained him. Well, in part, it's because he knew what it was he was to expect when he wrote to his son in the faith, uh, Timothy, about all, all of this. He writes to him and he speaks to him that he is, he is to, to continue on in the faith in that passage that I read uh, before. And he writes this, he says to Timothy, You, however, have followed my teaching. This is Second Timothy chapter 3. You followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings. That happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil, evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. He says, we'll be persecuted. Just like in the days of Jeremiah, we'll be persecuted. But they'll just continue on. They'll, the impostors, they'll just continue on. The deceivers, they'll just continue on. And it's like nothing will happen to them, but we're the ones who'll get persecuted for that. So set your expectations rightly. Again, next week we'll talk about how do you set those expectations like that and not become judgmental and not become self-righteous and not become angry and all those kinds of things. How do you do that? 
But here he says, I want you to have the courage because I want you to straight up get it. I want you to understand that this is the life to which you're called sheep in the context of wolves. Sheep sent to wolves. Peter writes this to a suffering church, First Peter in chapter 4. This is a church suffering where Nero was taking Christians and dipping them in pitch and using them to light his gardens. He writes them to this group of people to comfort them. He says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. I would think that would be strange. To be burned at the stake. That seems strange, doesn't it? It's not an everyday occurrence. It's not something you wake up in the morning and go, Oh yeah, what's your ordinary day? Well, on my daytime, I'm going to be burned at the stake. That seems strange. But he says, don't think that's that's strange. He says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. That you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. He says, but but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. God comes to us. Jesus comes to us. The Lord comes to us and says, listen, count the cost. Remember, Jesus had a group of people. They were following him. He said, he said first, I want you to count the cost. Don't be like the, 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 the commander who goes into battle before he assesses how many men he has in his army and before he assesses how many men are in the other army. Because if they have a million and you have a hundred, you're in trouble. Count the cost. You're going to follow after me. This is what it's like to follow after me, so follow after me. No, you're getting in there. But you see, what could sustain Jeremiah, what sustains us, is not only this sense of reality, not only these expectations, but the very promises of God. God comes to Jeremiah, you remember, and some of the things we've already read, and, and he says to Jeremiah, I will, in fact, be with you. Jeremiah 1.6, don't be afraid of them. What a stupid thing to say, unless there's a promise coming as well, and the promise that comes, God says, for I am with you to deliver you. Don't worry, I'm with you. He says in uh, verse 18, he says, I will will make you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar, a bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they will not prevail. He comes to them and he says, listen, I will be with you. God saying that. If you're having trouble and you come to me and I say, don't worry, I'll be with you, that shouldn't help you much. Because I'm not much. But when God says to us, I will be with you. With you. Jesus gives his church this commission. He says, now I want you to go into all the world. I have all authority, and so now I'm authorizing you because I have the authority to do that, and I have the authority over all the nations. I have all authority. Now I'm authorizing you to go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I commanded you. And we might say, well, that's a big chunk. And I've, I heard what you said, Jesus, about the world hating us. And I heard about all of that. And then he ends this with us. And he says, oh, but I'll be with you always to the very end of the age. That is not only you, but everyone who comes after you. I will be with you in that endeavor. So, so, so go. I know they're against you. I know they hate you and all of that. Some may rise up against you. Some may do to you what they did to Jeremiah. Some may do to you what I said they would do. But I'll be with you. I'll enable you. I'll help you. I'll sustain you. I'll give you courage. The passage I read in Matthew where Jesus is very explicit about what will come to those particular disciples in Matthew in chapter 10. 
The the rest of that passage uh, goes like this. He says, verse 24, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebub, that is Satan, how much more will they malign those of his household? Now again, Jesus said, listen, they're going to think you're as Satan because you're aligned with me. And so then the next verse begins with the word so, or because, because they'll think so poorly of you, because they'll hate you, because they'll come against you and persecute you. So, he says, have no fear of them. Again, Jesus, what are you talking about? You just said they're going to come against me. You said they're going to hate me. You said they're going to persecute me. They're going to flog me and all of that. And then you say, well, don't be afraid of them. Well, on what basis do you say that? So he says, have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that won't be revealed or hidden that won't be known. What I tell you in the dark, see in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. In other words, keep saying it because the truth will be revealed. It'll be shown. Don't worry. Your righteousness will prevail. The righteousness of God will prevail. Don't worry. He says, don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. In other words, Jesus says, all they can do is kill you. There is worse than that, you know. They can't touch your soul. Not a follower of Christ. That is protected. And, and that, he says, your, your eternal life will be protected. So though they kill you, don't worry. Fear the one who can kill your soul in hell. Kill that. Fear that one. And then he goes on to say, Aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. And you say, I appreciate that, but I wish I didn't have to fall to the ground. But he says, Oh, but even if you do, your father knows that. Fear not. And then he goes on, but even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore you are of more value than many sparrows. So if God cares for the sparrows, he knows what's going on in their lives. If he's sovereign over there, falling to the ground, don't you know he cares for you even more? If he puts you in that situation, he'll be with you. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I'll also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Jesus said, in the world you'll have tribulation, but don't worry. I've overcome it. I've overcome the world. I will be with you. Finally this, Jeremiah 15. Again, God says, this is the message you're to give to these people. And Jeremiah hears that message and he knows what's going to happen as he delivers it. Verse 10, he says, Woe is me, my mother, that you bore me, a man of strife and contention to the whole land And he says, listen, I've not lent nor borrowed, yet all of them curse me. In other words, he says, listen, I'm not not like a money lender, like a loan shark. I don't borrow from people and not pay them back. Why don't they like me? I know why they don't like me. They don't like me because they have this message. And so verse 15, he cries out to God. He says, oh, Lord, you know, remember me, visit me. That's his prayer. Remember me, that is act kindly towards me. Visit me. Take vengeance on, on my persecutors. Uh, He says, for in your forbearance, take me not away. Know that for your sake I I bear reproach. And then he goes on to say, you gave me these words and I took them and I delighted in them. They burn in my heart. 
I, I didn't sit with those who were rebellious. I, I, I isolated myself. I stayed alone so I wouldn't be with them. Uh, but now my pain is unceasing. My wound is incurable. It's refusing to be healed. Then verse 19, God gives him this promise. Again, I, I have to say, I say this, that God doesn't coddle us. He speaks truth to us in love. And he's comforting and kind and all of that. But you know, push comes to shove, he doesn't coddle us. He tells us the truth. And so as Jeremiah is lamenting like this, and I feel for him. I can't even imagine. You people are nice to me. You pay me. I can say all kinds of things to you, and you still pay me. It's just amazing. Uh, send me nice notes, you know. Uh, Jeremiah didn't get any of that. And so God says to him, even in the midst of this, he doesn't pat him on the head, he just says, if you return, Jeremiah, I will restore you. That is, if you repent. (laughs) Wait a minute, God, you didn't say something nice to him? He says, no, no, no. Don't think like this, Jeremiah. Don't live there. Don't stay there. If you return, I'll restore you and you'll stand before you. If you utter what is precious, not what is worthless, you shall be as my mouth. They shall turn to you, but don't you turn to them. Don't you become like them. And then he says, and I will make you to this people a fortified wall of bronze. They will fight against you. They will not prevail against you, for I am with you to save you, to deliver you, declares the Lord. I'll deliver you out of the land of the wicked, he says. But, but you need to get it get your mind right here, Jeremiah. Don't live in your lament. I read chapter 22. It's, it's just amazing. And I, I won't deal with it much today. That will occupy us more next week. But Jeremiah, verse 7 of chapter 20, starts out with this lament. And, and he says, you know, I feel as if you've deceived me, God. You're stronger than me. I've become a laughingstock of everybody. What can I do? So I said in my, my own heart, okay, verse 9, if I say, I will not mention him or speak his name anymore. So Jeremiah says, I'm just not going to do it. I'm not going to do this. I just won't talk about God anymore. And then I'll be fine. And then he said, but this word burned in me. It just burned in me. I, I couldn't not speak it. And so here I am, God. And now they're denouncing me on every side. But then he says, oh, the Lord is with me. He's my warrior. My persecutors will stumble. They won't overcome me. They'll be shamed. They won't succeed. The Lord of hosts who tests the righteous, sees the heart and the mind, his vengeance will come. And then Jeremiah worships and he says, sing to the Lord, praise the Lord, for he has delivered the life of the needy from the hand of the evildoers. And you say, there he is, worshiping God. But we mustn't forget the reality of the situation, the terror of the situation, the difficulty of the situation. And Jeremiah, even though he knows all of this, he still then laments, woe is me, and cursed be the day on which I was born. He's still living right there. Now that isn't the end of the story. It is today. But it's hard. It can be very difficult. And our courage comes... By knowing that. When preachers on TV tell you that following Christ makes a life of ease. That everything gets better. That your marriage gets better. That your job gets better. That you make more money. That your teeth get whiter. That, that you know, everything is just hunky-dory. It's a half-truth. There's great blessing in following after Christ. There's no blessing not following after Christ. 
And a day will come when all of that will be true, including your teeth, I suspect. But right now we live in a fallen world. And we're sent out like sheep in the midst of wolves. And we need to know that. Courage comes by knowing that. Courage comes by knowing that God hears our prayers. Courage comes by knowing that God is with us in the midst of all of this. In fact, Peter, when he writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, he speaks of our Lord Jesus. And he says that we're to follow his example. Now, we need to know that Jesus is more to us than an example. For we only follow his example... Because his example accomplished something for us. What he did literally accomplished something for us. It reconciled us to God, thereby enabling us to follow him and to follow his example. If it's just an example, if we're to live like Jesus lived, we're lost. We can't do that. We try that and we realize it's impossible for us. We can't glorify God perfectly the way that Jesus did. But he glorified God for us. He lived the life we should have lived so that we can be declared righteous by God. He died the death that we should die so that we can be forgiven our sins and reconciled to God. And then we're to follow his example. So how did Jesus endure? How did he endure the cross? How did he endure the persecution? How did he endure all of this? Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, he trusted in the one or in his father who judges justly. We trust in our Heavenly Father. That regardless of what we get as we follow Christ, we trust that He's sovereign over every circumstance. We trust He's sovereign over every person. We trust that He's king over every persecution. We trust that He loves us, that He cares for us, that He's wise, that He puts us in situations for His glory and our good. And therefore we find ourselves there. And that gives us courage because He says, I am with you. And we think about Jesus. The Father was with His Son. He forsook Him on the cross, but He didn't leave Him in the grave, but He raised Him up. He says, trust me. I'm with you. They won't defeat you. They won't overcome you. They won't triumph over you. I will raise you up. The night that Jesus was betrayed, all that was more real than we can ever imagine. He was with His disciples. He took bread... And I don't know, I have a sense that he really broke it. When I break the bread, I, in my own mind, I just break it and crumble it. Because he says, this is my body, what's going to happen to me is horrible. But it's given for you. And in the same way he took the cup, Jesus did. And after giving thanks, he gave this cup to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. He said, do this in remembrance of me. And what is it that we're to remember? Well, I haven't the time to list it all. But we certainly remember that he trusted the one who judges justly. He trusted his heavenly Father. He trusted that though he would go to the grave to accomplish all that the Father had called him to do, his Father would raise him up. We trust that no matter what situation we find ourselves in, no matter what venue God calls us to go into, no matter where we go, that, that God will be with us and that he will raise us up, that he won't abandon us, that he will raise us up. We remember that and we see it in Jesus. Let's pray. Father. confess, God, I haven't experienced 
of what the scripture talks about, what Jeremiah experienced, what, what, what others have experienced. Uh, my life has been a charmed one, I suppose. But I know the reality of it through the lives of others and some in my own. I know the scorn that can be faced by family and friends when one follows Christ. I know the rejection that one can feel in making hard decisions because one follows Christ. I know the evil look in the eyes of others when one follows Christ. I know the potential in the world in which we live. I see it, I read of it, of Christians who have fallen because of following Christ. Christ but we trust you so I pray that we would have courage God that you would give us courage knowing what to expect knowing that you are with us knowing that you hear us knowing that you answer us knowing that our Lord Jesus went through all of this and you raised him up and that we too will be raised up we give you thanks so I pray now, God, that you set aside this bread and this juice in such a way that would let us know that Jesus is here with us, that he's as close to us as this bread is, he's as near to us as this juice is. For he lives in us who trust in him. So I pray through this moment as we come to this table that you would give us courage. We'd see the reality of the life to which you called us. You'd give us courage because you know, we know that you're with us. You'd give us courage because... We know that you will strengthen us as we pray, as we read your word. Courage, because we know that you will be with us and raise us up. Father, bless this moment among us. In Jesus' name, amen. I remind you that this table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church, but it's the table of the Lord. He invites to it all those who understand themselves to be sinners without hope, except in God's sovereign mercy. All those who receive and depend upon our Lord Jesus, as he's offered to us in the gospel, as the Savior of sinners, and all those who desire to live a life that's consistent with that profession of faith of following after Christ, forgiven by him, walking with him in a life of repentance and obedience to God. That's true for you. I invite you to come. These two sections can come down the aisle to my left. These two down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and as you do, let go off in your head. I follow Jesus, and God is with me. Please come. <laughs>